So your day job is a creative director for EA Mobile, where there is not as much experimental design happening, maybe? Correct. Less of it. Right? Correct. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Chelsea Howe, creative director at EA Mobile. Chelsea is best known for her work at TinyCo, where she led the design of Family Guy, The Quest for Stuff, and for her community efforts organizing the Queerness in Games Conference, the Global Game Jam in San Francisco, student workshops, and more. Today's interview is conducted by Adam Saltzman, director of Finji, an indie developer and publisher. Adam is best known for creating Candibalt and is currently working on Overland. Ready? Now I'm really ready. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Say, <laughs> yeah, introduce yourself and talk about a little bit about what you do and um, uh, a little bit about day job and fun projects and all that stuff. Woohoo, all right. Uh, my name is Chelsea Howe. I'm currently the creative director at EA Mobile. Um, I have done free-to-play social freemium for most of my professional career. So I was at Zynga, I worked on Farmville, um, at TinyCo, I designed uh, Family Guy, The Quest for Stuff. Now I'm working on Unspeakables um, at EA. And then the other half of my life is usually doing super weird experimental indie things. Um, so I worked on the end of us. I ran the San Francisco Global Game Jam. Uh, now I'm helping Studio Bean out with Choice Chamber. I co-founded uh, the Queerness and Games Conference, QGCon, and I do other stuff, but nothing super significant. <laughs> cool. Um, so uh, this is technically the second time that we did this interview uh, this because. Is. <laughs> The first time that we did the interview, I did not press the record button properly Correct. on the device, and we had a really edifying, amazing, insightful chat for about two hours, and there's no record of it anywhere. Um, True. Uh, which is totally okay. So, um, uh, so let's see. So um, maybe to get started, this is not something we talked about last time at all, sort of, but... Um, uh, we could talk a little bit about uh, Choice Chamber. Maybe talk a little bit about what that game is and um, some of the... Yeah, we'll start there. All right, cool. So yeah, I guess Choice Chamber has a lot of interesting threads, like thought threads that all kind of like came together and braided into uh, this game project. So the first one I think was the idea of co-op. Um, Michael and I are super into co-op. When I was working at Super Better doing all the gamification stuff, uh, actual like psychological gameful design, not let's make marketing revenue gamification. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> very important distinguisher. Um, a lot of the research is like people prefer collaboration to competition, three to one. A lot of things that we traditionally think of as competitive, like sports, um, the the team 
collaboration is actually a bigger driver than beating the other team for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think that cooperative games, there, there just aren't as many of them. And I think there's so many cool ways that you can work together. And it's just that much more gratifying. I think it also mimics the kind of, uh, like, couch driving <laughs> um, stuff that I grew up with. I always grew up with one person having the controller surrounded by other people, like, watching, observing, mm-hmm. talking to them, telling them what to do. Looking up weird stuff in the instruction manual. Exactly. Which is totally asymmetric co-op, right? Like, yep. Yep. totally legit. And then just figuring out uh, ways to get that actually in the game is really yeah. exciting. And then, yeah. So we want to do something co-op. We love co-op games. We always make co-op games. So there's that thread. And the other thread, um, kind of related to the watching and observing, was Twitch. And this awesome new phenomenon where instead of it being someone with the controller and then, you know, other people around them, it's suddenly like hundreds to thousands of other people all watching, all participating um, as observers, not necessarily players. And we were in the car talking about all of these things. Um, We've been watching things like Awesome Games Done Quick um, and Twitch for years <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, we were like wouldn't it be great if instead of just sitting there and observing other people could be doing stuff to contribute like reading the manual or like giving you secret hands for like making maps yeah um, and I not being very technology minded was like that's awesome but it sounds impossible and he was like no 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 I bet all I have to do is like download the chat and he wound up figuring out a way to make it so that the chat was readable um and could be used as input Hmm. and then we were like okay awesome so we have a co-op game that involves these massive 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 participants um and that was kind of the the two things that were like this is perfect this is great this is everything we ever wanted and then of course we'd been playing um ranga and that was another Mm -hmm. massive co-op yeah yeah really really loved um, and that also and had the Ringo's a that's like an actual live crowd game with laser pointers yes. that you play like on a movie screen. Yes, so Ringo is their their quote is that it's a hundred person game played with lasers, and yeah. you actually have one person DMing behind the scenes, and everyone with their laser uh, pointer okay. has to work together to build up a spaceship and gather resources and then go out and fight all of these bosses. Mm. Um, we thought that was great, um, but it was really interesting how important it was, I think, for that experience to have a DM, um, because all of the challenges, like the pacing was what made it so gripping. Like it was, oh right. Like, even as someone who didn't have a laser pointer, it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. So there was this idea that, like to what extent did, did an experience have to be moderated or have to still have some like authorial overlay on it and then yeah twitch plays pokemon came out which showed kind of what chaos could do like unmitigated chaos right right and it was kind of interesting um but if you if you followed that it's gotten like more and more uh like boxed in so they switch from being anarchy to democracy and Mm -hmm. and there's already good game design underlaying that so you're like where's the boundary between giving something to people and letting them just go and run and be crazy and having having a underlying game and pacing and yeah all that so we talked stuff, so. um 
Uh, yeah, I was on a panel with a friend at, um, at South by Southwest a year or two ago, and um, we were talking a lot about, it was like a little two-person, it was, it was like, almost like a live podcast or something instead of a mm-hmm. panel, and we were just talking about um, digital games versus like board games and analog games, mm-hmm. and what are the things that they have in common, and what are the things they have di- oh, that are different about them, and mm-hmm. one of the things that we ended up talking about a lot is the weird way in which... Um, uh, a lot of computer games are really defined by being a, there's a mediator in both experiences, but it's sort of like either the computer is the DM or there's a person who is the DM mm-hmm. in one form or another. If, even if it's a four-player competitive game, usually as a board game, there's somebody who knows all the rules and they're teaching everyone, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if there's a dispute about the rules, it's always settled by the people as opposed to by this like weird cold machine. Um, but uh, you know, digital games don't have to be formally like they're always going to be computer mediated in one way or another but they don't have to be solely computer mediated and it's not something that is explored that much it seems like yeah um like i can't think of a lot of other examples where you had like you had sleep is death which was right yeah yeah yep uh which was sort of like a and there's i guess there's other kind of like platforms for dming that are sort of a thing but um uh and i guess there's like I don't know. We have like there's like multiplayer competitive games where you have like a commander role mm-hmm. and they can see more of the board than other people sometimes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't know. It's a funny space and it feels like it's kind of like under explored. But what is like what are the things as a designer where you you look at like uh like a a human helping a computer mediate the play where the human is able to do like what are the things that the person can do for like for really cheap that would be mm-hmm. like really hard to make the computer do by itself well so i think there's a few things that the the pacing one to me mm-hmm. is is really really important because the basically a human can just process far more inputs than a computer ever can mostly yeah. because the players aren't capable of giving many discrete inputs to a computer but all of their physiological emotional state is readable to someone who would have oh right access to yeah even even if it's just like reading a chat room there are flavors and like all you know text is charged so it's like a it's like a really broad uh, a really wide channel of information coming in instead of like a super super exactly instead of my button presses right 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 um and so i think that 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 helps with the pacing because you can tell if someone's really struggling, but they're having a blast, which is what happened with Renga where we were like, Oh, okay. we were like, yeah. oh my God, you're so close. Like we were, we were technically failing. And if it had been some sort of like dynamic difficulty thing, the computer would have made it easier, but our right. DM didn't. Um, and I think hmm. that, that balance is, is really interesting. Right. They could go the other way and just make it even harder if like struggling was the funny part. Yeah. Right? You're like, hmm. um, and then the other thing is just, like, again, like, emotional response and emotional resonance. Not from a, like, pacing and difficulty, but from a, I hear and respond to your human creativity. Like, I guess uh, yeah. Scribble Knots sort of does that mm-hmm. a little bit, just because it gives you such a breath. But, like, you're never going to play a digital game where the DM can respond directly to what you just said. Right? right. Where you were like, okay... Can I jump over the first orc's head, spin around with my dagger, slice his throat while my other hand is punching? Like, you can't do that in a game. Like, there's no game that lets you do that or be that creative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
and a DM lets you process all of that, figure out how to map that to the inputs that a machine or a system has, yeah, um, yeah. and then fudge it if it's not possible. Yeah. Like my favorite role playing games are the ones where I have one d twenty and I do this long list of crazy shit I want to do, and the DM's like, "All right, roll your d twenty, and if it's above <laughs> this, then you do." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And the computers, yeah, you can't get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of weird aspects of like performance and like. Um, uh, like some improv things and uh, and so we talk about uh, like in non-human games I still like to use this idea of we talk a lot about like um, when you're designing a game and you find like so maybe you're, like you're like building a game and the game is supposed to be about X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. and then you find there's a place in the game where players really want to do um, you know let's say I don't, I don't even what's even a good example like the players really want to do action A or whatever and action A just does not feel good in the game. It doesn't, you know, fit with what you want to achieve or whatever. But if you just ignore that the player is trying to do that, then it can feel really weird. And so we have this idea of, you know, something that, like a, a thing that makes you feel good when you're messing around with a black box is when the black box, you know, the black box doesn't have to congratulate you for everything you do, but it, when it acknowledges the things that you're trying to do, mm-hmm. that that is extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, or can be, depending on what you're trying to achieve, obviously. But, um, but I, like, I actually use that language a lot. We're like, okay, well, the game needs to acknowledge these three things that you're trying to do, even if it mm-hmm. doesn't let you do them. So, yeah. like, a game where you can't turn the camera and look at the scene from a different angle... Maybe sometimes you let people move the camera a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it kind of goes back to where it was. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you're going like, oh yeah, I get you. You want to move the camera, but th- that it doesn't do that in this yeah. game. It's not that you haven't found the right button. But like, at least you're doing it no, right. Yeah. But yeah, we're just not we're not doing that right now. Like that feels like something you would do as a friend. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I like things like that, but that's even like a lot of games don't do that, even with the teeny bit of info that they're getting just from button presses, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of. Um, yeah, that's a good argument for having people be in the mix somewhere. Um, well, I think about it like I've been playing way too much Dragon Age Inquisition lately, and you get to a point where even if it's a character that you've developed a relationship with, you'll wind up having one response to them. It'll be, hey, talk to you later. Hey, talk to you later. Hey, talk yeah. to you later. Or, hey, how are you? Great, talk to you later. And you just you wind up like, yeah. and there's you wind up at a place where there is no diversity anymore. There's no more content. You've reached the end of that content, and it just feels so artificial. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, you're talking earlier about co-op and competitive, and how like being on a team with other people is like the one of the main drives. But there's like a lot of. Um, uh, I don't want to say like literature exactly, but like there's a like a, there's a weird thing that happens when you're playing a competitive game where you are kind of collaborating with your opponent. Mm-hmm. Right? The well played game, like yeah. that's Bernie Decoven's whole right. Yeah. So there's that, and then uh, 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 and that comes up like so there's that versus like there's like a David Serlin like playing to win, mm-hmm. and no such thing as a cheap strategy or mm-hmm. stuff like that but i always felt like uh that even that playing to win or no such thing as a cheap strategy like i've seen like people play uh street fighter robotically mm-hmm. uh using 
like the cheapest strategies they can, but mm-hmm. when it's the best people in the world doing it, mm-hmm. like they're clearly still collaborating. Mm-hmm. Like there's clearly like a kind of weird but then like, the game is partner like, dancing show yeah. of technical finesse kind yeah. of going on. But see, that's not Street Fighter anymore, right? Like you, you reach a point where the game that you're playing isn't Street Fighter. It's this meta Street Fighter community involvement performance, mm-hmm. which is really, yeah. really interesting as well. Yeah. Because I think any competitive game, you can play with people who are really good at it and who appreciate your skill, and the meta context is still going to be collaborative. I just think yeah. that it takes, I think it takes a certain skill equivalence to get there, or I guess more, it's more of a shared understanding, because like when Michael and Greg were talking about, it's not fun for anyone to play me in Smash Brothers. Oh, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Right, you can't even reach yeah. that point of, oh, it was a good game, therefore yeah. we collaborated on a shared experience of skill expression. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Because the experience was, I'm going to slaughter you now, and you're not going to understand why or how or appreciate how good I am. You're just going to get the feedback that you suck again and again and again. <laughs> right, right. That's why you're supposed to pick a crappy character. <laughs> That's how you, like, yeah. Maybe they don't have crappy characters anymore. Uh. Um, I always just Kirby smashed everything for a second. <laughs> um, and is that you feel like that's a thing that comes out like when you start to put like a, a player in the mix with the computer that it like it's kind of like either by is it just like is it just broadening that thing or is it it's like this reactive like oh who are the players what are they into right now how many people do we want to like draw into this thing at the same time and that just a person can just do that. Better. I so I like when the computer comes in because it's kind of it's a new actor and it's like figuring out if it's going to be the player and the viewers versus the computer or if the viewers are going to team up with the computer against the player or if the player is going to team up with the computer. So it kind of creates this like oh, love right. triangle experience almost. Yeah. So like one example, um, one of our favorite streamers. Uh, Ezekiel the third Zeke was streaming Choice Chamber, and there's a point where um, you get to the treasure room, which unveils whatever people have voted on. And you go to the treasure chest, and it opens, and you get your new bonus. Um, and there's a particular jumping bonus called Pogo, mm-hmm. and Pogo mean, makes you constantly jump, even if you don't want to jump. Oh, okay. Um, and he knew that everyone had voted for Pogo, and so he jumped over the chest. And no one had ever done that before. Oh, but it was okay. totally yeah, 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 yeah. It was like this totally emergent behavior. He was like, I don't want that. I'm going to jump over the chest. And he left the treasure room and went on. And the chat was furious. They were so <laughs> mad. And so from that moment on, they voted for the absolute worst things they possibly could every single time there was a new mm-hmm. um, every time there was a new challenge. And so he was like, Alright guys, I promise I will never ever jump over <laughs> a chest again. But this has gotta stop. And that was cool where he ganged up with the system against them and then they yeah. ganged up with the system against him and there was yeah. this really cool back and forth like lovers hmm. quarrels sort yeah. of feel to it. Um, which was oh, really man. enjoyable. So I guess that's that's one way that I like yeah. it. Yeah, it's weird having a, a like a big group of people like that. It's no longer um, so usually when I think of like certainly when I think of competitive games it's like team A versus team B or mm-hmm. you know it's a four player free for all mm-hmm. or maybe you get really crazy like ten person free for all and at mm-hmm. some point it just like like we lose the ability to 
like distinguish that there is a game with dynamic like it's too much anarchy or chaos mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. uh but then uh uh when you have a thousand people all playing, but they're all kind of like, by virtue of being the thousand people who are all playing at once, like somehow that that turns into like this one weird. It becomes a unit. Yeah. It, it becomes like a blob, and we've seen the. It's pretty weird. It's really weird. So we've seen <laughs> those blobs like develop their own skill sets over time. Yeah. Um, that are different depending on the audience that you're with. Like, so that was really cool. So, like, in non-game design fields, that's what people call emergence. Mm -hmm. So, like, in biology or whatever, when they Mm -hmm. talk about emergence, they're talking about, like, there's 20... Because when we say, like, a game designer is talking about emergence, usually we're saying, like, well, we, you know, we didn't specifically program this one scenario, but it happens organically because of the rule set. Yeah. On a biological scale, they're usually talking about that because they're like, well, ants... Mm-hmm. have really simple rules. Mm-hmm. But if you have 20,000 ants, the way that those rules express themselves is super weird and yeah. it generates this really weird uh, results. Yeah, like the uh, larger unit behaviors. Yeah, that are yeah. that are way more, have way more personality and intelligence than any single ant mm-hmm. obviously can have. Yeah, absolutely. There's like very, like, 10,000 stupid things can do these really smart things yeah, yeah. <laughs> and be really, really complex, which is, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's not a hard thing to describe, but I find it like really hard to actually accept for some reason hmm. that you can have like, you know, if you gave 10,000 people just like on off switches, mm-hmm. that's really, really different from like two people with some PlayStation controllers, like the behaviors mm-hmm. that are going to come out of it are going to be and yet you can make a computer by having just a yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah. Switches, right? <laughs> yeah yes totally like, totally totally yeah uh, uh, and then i i love how how those blobs reflect so much the, the stream personalities because there are people on zeke's stream that can organize in a way that people on michael's stream can't hmm. that's really really t- uh, interesting as well because uh, we have certain things that you can only trigger if everyone's kind of like in a in a collaborative mood, so they're, they're like they're safeguards against sheer anarchy and antagonism. But there are certain things like if you have it, it checks to see who's active, and you have to have like I think ninety percent active users all press the same thing within oh, okay. a certain amount of time. So it's like you have to move towards this one thing, and there are certain streams that just can't do that, or hmm. or their players will trigger these special abilities really really early. So that they're not actually applicable to the game. And I don't know. There's all sorts of... Hmm. It's very interesting to see which streams can pull off what. And also how that correlates to size. Because there's some things that, like, a giant streamer has no issues with. Um, And then someone who has, like, three followers has no issue with. Because the three followers can... (laughs) Right, they can hash it out. And the massive ones, you wind up with, you know, the law of averages. And it just works. But then there's this, like, middle area where it's, like, there's just enough people that the chaos Hmm. is, like, not... I feel like those middle areas are where we always think of those being like ideal group sizes in a way hmm. too, at least for some things. Maybe not for making decisions, but I feel like, uh, uh, I know I've talked to a lot of people because the so game industry has obviously gone through these like really weird changes where there was like uh, really, really small teams and then there was medium sized teams. Now there's like 500 person teams or a thousand person teams or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little intense. Um, but there's this like 30, 40, 50 person team size mm-hmm. where... Um, people are like so happy because you can know everyone, mm-hmm. but you have like all of these people who can um, 
who have all these different differentiated. skills. differentiated. You can specialize. Yeah. You feel like you have a unique role, but not yeah. be overwhelmed. But and... not everybody there is always making the same decision. Yeah. Like, there's usually, like, three or four people who are making most of the big, high-level decisions. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I wonder if... Yeah, I guess there's a good reason you don't usually have 50 people trying to do something at the same time. But 500 people or 5,000 people, it's sort of okay because, like you're saying, like there's just kind of noise and averages. And yeah. There's these weird experiments where, um, you know, like the game where you fill up a jar with beans or whatever mm-hmm. and you have to guess how many things are in the jar. Mm-hmm. And um, almost nobody can get even close. Mm-hmm. But if you have, like, 100 people all guess, Mm -hmm. their average will be extremely close to the number that's actually in the jar. Really? Which is super weird, (laughs) right? Like, that shouldn't shouldn't be a thing, but it's like it's a thing that people do. Like, if you basically, you throw enough darts at this area or whatever, Mm -hmm. like, they kind of average out to sort of be in the middle. It's weird. That's really awesome, actually. (laughs) It's pretty strange. There's something about, like, like what you were saying with the 30 to 50 people team where you have, like, this weird mix of people executing and people creating or, like, decision-making or guiding. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there... Hmm. Like, there's, there's something there in my head that I'm not able to articulate, but it's, like, that's the point where there's that transition from... Yeah. Distinguishable individual units to people. So yeah, and I've been on. I worked. I was at a company for a while that when we were like ten or probably ten or twenty people, probably more like ten people who are doing real development work or whatever. And there was something. There was something really, really good going on where. Um, uh, this is probably we're probably too far afield at this point, but there was like <laughs> it was really good accountability for your. Th- your actions or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like if like if if you had an idea for a thing, they would just say, "Well, do it." Mm-hmm. You know, oh, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, there was no like um, what do they call it? Like tokenization. Mm-hmm. Like this, like tokenizing is like a psychological thing where if you give someone, uh, uh, if you say like, "There's some money over there," don't take any of it, but nothing bad will happen to you if you do. And a lot of people still won't take it, but mm-hmm. if you if you put a pile of tokens over there mm-hmm. and you say, there's a bunch of tokens there, please don't take them. But if you do, you can exchange them for dollars over there. Mm-hmm. And people will take crap loads of tokens <laughs> and go exchange them for dollars. Just the, the removal. It's, no, it's like, yeah, yeah, the end result is no different, but because there's like this in-between step kind of. Which is also the way, reason that people have soft currency in games. Yes. Which is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want... And that's why we have, like, credit cards. Yeah, and... <laughs> so it just excuses you from responsibility. It yes. makes it harder for you to... Isn't that yeah, sad that you, like, a single step a can do so yeah. much to mess up your mental models? It only needs to be one step. Isn't that... Isn't that so as... Uh, Ian Bogos just posted an article about, in the medium, going against the ludic century, because he was, like, fundamentally, games being systems-based limits their accessibility. Because we as humans are so fucking incapable of processing systems. I think that's just like hit well, the nail on the head. If one single step. Yeah. Well, there's another thing <laughs> where we have, there's a thing where uh, the more, um, the more convinced you are that you are uh, not being sort of manipulated by systems around you. Oh yeah. The more, the more likely yeah. you are to be manipulated by systems around you. Like yeah. if you think that it's happening, it changes, you know, and has all sorts of weird little changes in how mm-hmm. you react to things and think about things. And yeah, I think we're just we're just bad at it. Yeah, like it's not something we're cut <laughs> out to do, probably. 
Which is weird when your job is a game designer. Yes. <laughs> because you're making things for people to be bad at, sort of. I mean, that's what a game oh, is, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Is you're putting obstacles, you make a simple goal and you put some obstacles in between yeah. the person and the goal, and now you have a game. But uh, it feels weird to build things. Because, like, a thing that I like to think about is. Um, is uh, right, so why why make games instead of being a doctor or whatever? Mm-hmm. And there's I think there's lots of good reasons, but for me, one of them is well, um, you know, and why make puzzle games specifically, or why make systems based games mm-hmm. specifically? Uh, and one of the reasons that I like to do it, regardless of what the theme of the game is, is I think you can, I think it's possible to make games that are engaging enough with two people that they will gain systems literacy mm-hmm. as a, an underlying skill set. Yeah. Like, I think that's something that I got... I don't have any... I, there's no science. I like my my bad gut feeling is that I played video games as a child mm-hmm. and I have a lot of system literacy as an adult. Mm-hmm. And that's just a correlation, you know, not necessarily, like, a causal relationship. Mm-hmm. But um, I like that... There's got to be research done on that. Uh, like, at the very maybe. least, there's research on the attitudes with which people approach, like, challenge and complexity. Yeah. Or complexity as I feel like people play iPhone games all the time, and I feel like people's systemic literacy is not, like, yes, necessarily Yes, but I don't think that most games people play rely on systemic understanding, or reward it, or even try to have that as a main challenge. Like, you think uh. about Candy Crush, there's absolutely nothing systemic that you need to know about it. Like, you can't... You can't, right? I was actually really surprised that... Uh, I, so I actually... I played Candy Crush for the first time, like, two weeks ago or something. Oh, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, or a month ago. It was pretty recently. <laughs> it was the sequel, technically. So, yeah. But um, it was surprisingly, uh, like, mechanically hardcore. Mm-hmm. Like, the game systems are extremely complicated in that game. There's a new system in every level. Um, At least early on, yeah. There's no tutorials going on. There's no wasted time. Like, the game's just like, go, here's a level, and level two is something, some crazy new mechanic, and level three is another crazy new mechanic. And then, Mm -hmm. like, eventually, like, they put the screws in after, like, eight levels. And they're like, oh, yeah, we weren't telling you, but when you were restarting your puzzles, you were using up lives, Mm -hmm. and now you have to, like, go do something else for a half hour, or you Mm -hmm. can just send us cash. Mm -hmm. Uh, It did that thing, but, like, I was actually, like, I, I was... Playing like this is this is like a systemically for me it was a, a systemically hardcore puzzle game. Hmm. Maybe it's not for other people, which I would believe. I think that because like twenty forty eight is not a systemic puzzle game for most people that play it. It yeah. is like a uh, it's it's a random pleasant it's variable reward. Tactile it's, I'm going activity. to try to move these around, and sometimes yeah. it's going to be really good, and I'm going to get really yeah. high combinations, and sometimes I'm going to get low ones. Yeah, I just have very to do few this. people. Are, yeah, very few people are like okay. Let me plot out what the optimal way to move these are in order right. to the highest combinations. Yeah, which I feel like is okay. I've come. Around, I feel like uh, relatively recently I've been coming around to the idea of it's okay to make things that are just comfortable for people, mm-hmm. or allow them to play a game that does offer that that you can engage with systemically mm-hmm. to have like to allow you to play comfortably rather than like force you mm-hmm. to. Like to say no fun unless like you eat all your vegetables and do all yeah. your homework or whatever. Yeah, as a as a <laughs> as a social mobile designer, <laughs> it, it was actually a long time coming to terms with that. And I think a lot of it was just realizing that 
like if you look at um, like Stuart Brown's research on types of play or like things that we enjoy intrinsically, like mm-hmm. challenge, challenge is one small yeah. type of play, and there's yeah. so many other ones. I think games are just starting to catch up to that. Like the um, what is Mark? What Mark LeBlanc refers to as submission, like which is actually that kind of like meditative, automatic, just yeah habitual activity yeah Um, just like planting crops or like moving things in in threes or whatever your Mm -hmm. game of the week is Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. a that's a perfectly legitimate type of fun yeah um and i think that the idea that fun has to come from challenge or that fun that doesn't come from challenge is somehow lesser is just another form of elitism i feel like yeah (laughs) or i feel like for me it comes from like this weird like Oh, if it's not a challenge, then it's not good for you, sort mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Which is like... It's not stretching my it's brain. It's like a moralistic a... model of, <laughs> like, fun, which seems Well, it comes weird. from the... It, 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 it's an interesting, like, warping of the theory of fun, right? That all fun is learning, and if I'm not learning anything, if I'm just doing, or I'm just acting, right. or if I'm well, just... Yeah, but I think it's... Pleasure, for me, it's weirder. Like... For me, it's like, if it's not... If you're not learning, then... Who cares if it's fun because it's bad for you? Yeah. Kind of? Yeah. Like it's wasted time before yeah. you die. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's the model I have in my head for yeah. it. That's why like I think it has to have challenge in it or whatever. But like mm-hmm. it's like very recently coming around to like maybe some people have enough challenge mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. already and it's okay to like let them do those other activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not it. that's where I wound up. Like I wound up with like like kind of in the realm of like like time affluence and self directed activity and the time that you have to give to self directed activity and like that's like your chosen mm-hmm. time and like the value of that as a mindset that you can have and value in games that provide that mindset to you. Hmm. What's, least, a, what's an example? Like, like if I, if I sit down and I am playing Dragon Age and I redo, I reload an old save just to go through the romance part with one of the characters, Mm -hmm. like no value. I've literally already consumed that content. It's known quantity. I'm gaining no Hmm. skills. It's, it's just, it's pleasurable for me to experience. And there's that state of being in something that is pleasurable. That's yeah valuable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which i get i don't know because i that can also just decay into your your traditional addiction pleasure yeah sort of cycle but i don't know there, hmm. well there has to be like like so uh as um colin as colin northway said once and i latched onto it <laughs> i love it as a thing just because there's a gray area doesn't mean you're in it yeah right like i think there can be like uh you know, going back to the, uh, like, sometimes going back to a thing you love versus, you know. <laughs> that looks really comfortable, Kai. <laughs> Kai Pai, um, can you be a little bit louder, please? I can't hear you. <laughs> so um, <forlorn. laughs> uh, you know, going back to something that makes you feel, like, I've probably, I, I would say, like, for me, that, like, comfort game 
one of the comfort games that was like Castlevania Symphony of the Night, where I probably just play it once a year. It takes like three or four hours or something, and I'm not usually getting any new insight or learning anything. It's mm-hmm. just it just feels really good. And in that case, you've got a little bit of ritual going on, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And then to me, there's also that like. You know, you get your best ideas when you're in the shower or when you're on a walk or all yeah. that. Like, I think there's yeah. also something to be said for that zenning out where you're like, well, you're and doing something so routine, so yeah. automatic. There are some things that I, um, there's a design book that I love called The Timeless Way of Building that I've probably, I read at least three times before I read it again this year. Mm. And reading it this year was mind-blowing. <laughs> It was totally different than previous times that I read it. Isn't that so weird? It wasn't at all how I remembered it. It seemed like it was about something completely different. Hmm. And I was like, that was that was interesting. So now, <laughs> now I need to read it again next year to find out what it's actually about again, yeah. I guess. Huh. Uh, um, uh, so another thing that Trish Chamber has is, what's the basic way that, that the... That you deal with the mob, kind of? Like, mm-hmm. is it... It's all, like, a series of, like, votes that happen? So that's the most... That's the most basic one, which I don't... I always tell this to me. I'm like, I'm actually disappointed at how many times we rely on voting. Because I just think it was, it's It's so... really powerful for... There's a bunch of games where voting mechanics are, like, um, crazy potent. And mm-hmm. I've been trying to figure out how to put them into single-player games because mm-hmm. they're so potent. Because mm-hmm. they... I think they are... They're a really interesting way of uh, disclosing partial information, kind of. How so? So the example, the what do they call? What do they call those games? There's a special. I've heard a funny term for it. There's like uh, partially cooperative. I can't remember. Um, but uh, games like uh, Werewolf. I was going to say in the Mafia Werewolf yeah, sort of zone. Um, uh, there's a board game I think called Dead of Winter or something like that, where there's a lot of like voting that happens, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it's a really uh, like in the uh, the Venn diagrams of like human things that we already understand and take into a game, mm-hmm. and the Venn diagram of we don't want perfect information mm-hmm. um, because imperfect information is interesting because you have to build lots of alternate world models or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Voting is one of the few things that, like, lies in the little piece mm-hmm. in between, I think, anyway. Maybe there's mm-hmm. other things I'm just not thinking of. Um, hmm. But it's a kind of a powerful beast. But you don't... But it's... Yeah, to me, I, I think... And maybe it's just the way that we've approached it. But nothing, nothing that you're voting on, like, reflects your human understanding. Right? And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that Werewolf does, is it... It relies on you using all of your human skills and reading people's facial expressions and yeah. thinking through all of your all of your branches on your possibility yeah. tree. It's, it's a like... weird thing because it's a button press mm-hmm. that also has a bunch of extra <laughs> information that goes with it. Yeah, which is oh, I, I love that. Um, <laughs> but in Twist Chamber, it's like, what sword do you want the player to have? It's like you're not. There's not that whole depth of influences hmm. helping you make that decision like they're they're usually relatively simple decisions so like one of the things i told was like what if you're coming up with the backstory of the character and if you have certain combinations of backstories you can get to new places in the game or if there's some sort of like combinatory thing but even that doesn't have oh. any sort of like 
But I really liked the example earlier of like the guessing, like the player mm -hmm. being pretty sure they knew what the crowd had voted for mm -hmm. and making a decision based on that. Mm -hmm. It seemed like really classic, like for me, that's like, like the crazy power of voting as a mm -hmm. class of things like comes out in that where you're trying to predict what. Yeah, that was the one of the more. That was definitely one of the more interesting ones. I wonder if there's a way because right now I think we actually, no, we didn't. Yeah, so we don't actually show the voting totals on the screen anymore. So assuming that you're in a large enough, and again, this is one where you'd have to have a large enough mass for that chat to make it difficult and challenging. Oh right, um, right. Yeah, there's something like that. I don't know. There's more we can do with voting. <laughs> Cool. Though I'm going to say that with just about everything in Choice Chamber. That's the maddening thing about it is that there's so much new cool things to do. Um, one of the things that I like the most are the ones that involve manipulating a level in real time. So there's one level that's, that we call the bridge. Mm -hmm. And then you start out, you open the door, and then there's just a gigantic gap. And then everyone in the room can say a number between 1 to 10, and that gives a height for a little piece of platform. Oh, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you build this, like, weird bridge. Yeah. And then hmm. advanced players will know that there are secrets in the upper uh, left and upper right corner. So uh, you kind of wind up with these bridges where, like, there's, like, gaps up to, like, a center height. And then the gaps going back. Like, you have to, like, plan it really uh, well. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is another skill thing, right? So the chat rooms who have done this a lot of times will know that and will be prepared to do that. Hmm. Um, and then the, the newbie chatters just usually put the bridge way up at the top, and then you have to like refresh. And it's there's another one where you have um, you go into the room, and the room's completely solid, filled up with chunks of different colored blocks. And by saying the name of the color, they toggle the collision of that block type. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they'll say yeah. orange, and all the orange blocks will disappear or become transparent, and then you can go into those holes. And that's another interesting one where people have to be watching what other people are saying in the chat because the lag in Twitch won't let them see what they're doing in real time. Oh. So they get the starting state, basically. And yeah. then they have to mentally keep track of what's hmm. happening in the chat and where they think the player would be going. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. There's Yeah, there's a funny space here where there's like... Um, uh, so normally, so there's a, a, an interesting thing that's been happening in games for a long, for a while, for 10 or 20 years, is this kind of blurring of um, players and designers. And it's not a thing mm -hmm. that people necessarily notice a lot, but, um, uh, you know, games like um, uh, Dota was based on a Warcraft 3 mod made not by a game designer at a company, just by a person who was playing the game and liking it a lot. Yep. Uh, and Counter-Strike is the same way. Um, uh, you know, they're relative... Uh, tower defense as a genre um, was a mod-based thing. Um, they're pretty powerful. It's, it's, a, it's a really weird thing where... We were talking about earlier about like constraint, like hardware constraints resulting in these like really philosophically sound and consistent mm -hmm. games back in the 1980s. Um, before maybe before there was like a somebody was thinking about game design as a thing. I'm always, um, uh, I feel like as a, a game designer, mm -hmm. it's often easy to feel like, at least sometimes, like you know what you're doing, <laughs> you know, or there's like a right way to do a thing, and mm -hmm. then you kind of like then you see something that a 
a mirror player <laughs> in air quotes mm-hmm. designed mm-hmm. and it is you know um uh genre defining mm-hmm. you know it's like a big 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 deal and that's not always true but um uh, some it feels like what the with Twitch plays Pokemon and with Trace Chamber way more so there's um, like a blurring of line between player and spectator, which is really weird. Yes. Well, it's... And now, and then some of the Trace Chamber rooms, you're kind of blurring the line between like player and spectator and designer also because they're controlling like the geometry of the level. Mm-hmm. That's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we give a lot of the games, and that's actually one of the things that's made the pacing's hard, pacing hard. It's like if you talk to people who have played Choice Chamber... For a lot of people, it'll be really boring and then impossible. Yeah, because usually as a spectator, you don't need skill or experience. Right. It, it helps enrich your own, you know, whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have a noticeable effect on another spectator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but now, if everybody, if there are ten thousand people who are playing and watching all at the same time, like you have. Maybe this is the thing. Is this the thing that is weird about like system-based games or challenge-based games? Is like you have, uh, you have some responsibility suddenly. Mm-hmm. Like it's like being reminded that just like there are other people and you can affect them. Yeah. Like, uh, and it directly it directly relates to the quality of your own experience. Because like in Choice Chamber, people wind up figuring out what good design is because they want the game to continue, but they don't want it to be too easy. They don't want it to be too hard. And so they wind up adjusting the number of lives they're giving the type of, because there's definitely easier and harder, um, like weapons to use. And so if it's someone that's failing, they'll give them a better weapon so that they can try to get through. And if it's someone who's really succeeding, they'll be like, fuck you, here's Pogo and a hammer. (laughs) Like you get the bottom of the barrel. Um, and then you also have the, the Twitch viewer, uh, the Twitch, Twitch streamers doing their own kind of, experience design i guess twitch streaming regardless Mm -hmm. of the game you're playing is experience design right um but definitely within the game being able to do things like you can uh short circuit a vote so you can actually in some rooms it'll show you where the vote is and you can stop the vote whenever you want to oh and so there's like there's fun things like that where it's like you have the streamers agency in direct competition with yeah yeah. viewers agency and that's yeah. kind of that's huh. fun and interesting and then if they're depending on how they want to play it and how their stream is yeah. feeling at the moment they know to either be antagonistic or be collaborative or... Hmm. Hmm. Uh, slight slight shift from choice chamber um, uh, so your Day job is a creative director for EA Mobile, where there is not as much experimental design happening, maybe. Correct. Less of it. Right? Correct. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so when we did this interview the first time, um, there was a bunch. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is a project where we're talking to a lot of independent game designers and mm-hmm. we're not talking to a lot of um, social, mobile, freemium game designers. Uh, and so there is um, 
there's a bunch of stuff there that I think is uh, is pretty interesting, and um, for me as a designer, it was really great to hear about, and it's not something that I would seek out on my own. <laughs> Right, like, and there's not, not, not a lot of. I feel like there's not a lot of people going like, "Yeah, I'm gonna make some mini games. I'm gonna like read up on free to play, like, like really hardcore economy models." Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is like there is stuff in there, and I think one of the um, uh, we talked about a couple of things. We talked about um, data driven design or metrics driven design, mm-hmm. and um, uh, but we also talked about. Um, you made a really compelling point last time, I think, where you were saying that, um, so these mobile social freemium free-to-play things are, um, kind of are pretty templated. They're sort of like different kinds of game. I I don't even know what they're called. There's like... Yeah, you have your, your... Builder is your basic, like, city builder, and then you can have builder battlers, which is, like, Clash of Clans. You can have, um, yeah. like, CCGs, like, your Brave Frontier, your Puzzles and Dragons. Puzzles and Dragons is, like, a match-three CCG, and, mm. yeah, and people are just finding new ways to combine them, but they're, they're definitely, like, five or six, like, core templates, and then... Yeah, and there's, like, a set of game mechanics that go with those things that are kind of... <laughs> Uh, proven to overlap with monetization systems in like a really uh, well understood way, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, so as a uh, we're talking about like f- feeling like as a free to play designer or mobile social game designer, like you're designing games for this huge audience, which is mm-hmm. great. What a cool opportunity! But then you have to like pick from. Uh, sort of some pre-existing set of mechanics mm-hmm. that have already been proven rather than uh, getting to pick, getting to make new mechanics that generate the same emotional reaction in players. Right. Um, which made a lot more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that seemed like a really good way of doing it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my probably biggest frustration with working in free-to-play is that because you wind up having these games that are going to go out to such a huge audience, and because going out to that big of an audience requires a big investment in terms of your user acquisition, you yeah. get the same sort of behaviors that you get in AAA, which is we want to be more conservative, we want to be more proven, like show us a model that works, like what is your comp for this, um, all of that jazz. And it's a lot about, I think it, it fundamentally comes from not understanding why people enjoy free to play games. Because uh, I think that's totally a thing. Like um, at least in EA, when you've got so many people coming from console, like there's a very good understanding of like the ch- of challenge and what challenges are fun. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at a game like Farmville or like Candy Crush, and you're looking for that challenge or that skill, and what you're seeing is just these kind of like dopamine inducing, like meditative, repeated gesture stuff. It's like yeah. why why do people like this? And because of that. Um, I like that the solution for a lot of people is to just give up and say, I don't know. <laughs> like, that seems like a good, like, I can't, I, I, like, and you see that happen in normal AAA games sometimes. Like, yeah. games come out where you're like, wow, this is like aliens played other AAA games and thought they understood what was going on, <laughs> and really they didn't. But, yeah. like, this seems really broad. Like, are there, this isn't something we talked about last time, but do you, do, are there people who are in, like, 
social mobile frame, etc., who um, do understand how it works? I think there are definitely a few, um, for sure. Like, there are people, and it's mostly the people who don't come from that background and are used to playing things that are not AAA games. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, one of our best designers is someone who came from web and loved things like Farmville and is one of the people who would play Farmville and who would play Candy Crush and who would play Clash of Clans and yeah. genuinely, truly enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and that's really, really important. Like, so many people are like, again, with that elitism, like, these aren't real games, this isn't legitimate, like, the people who play these are morons, like, it judges the game, it judges the people who play those games, and it's like, you're not going to learn how to make these and how to make them work and understand why people like them if that's the attitude that you have going into it, which is yeah. why you wind up with copying mechanics because you're like, oh, this mechanic worked, oh, this mechanic worked. And then what you wind up with is that novelty comes only from the the skinning or the aesthetic wrapper, which is probably one of the most like like quickly dismissed types of novelty. Right, it'll be yeah. for a very brief period of time, then it'll lose its shiny. Whereas new mechanics are things that you have to relearn, re-understand, come up with new mental models. Um, and what really needs to happen is people need to understand the fun or the intrinsic motivation behind these free-to-play mechanics, and then they need to come up with new mechanics that give people that same sort of satisfaction. Yeah. That's going to give them, you know, way longer life cycles um, instead of just reskinning the same old thing again. When I was, I was really surprised that um, when I did sit down and play Candy Crush, like it was a very mechanically innovative. Like in in match three, it wasn't just a. It's not. This is the thing that. Um, that I didn't get before I sat down and played it like a grown-up mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is that um, I really I, th- I I mean I have to, so I know like a big part of these games becoming enormous household names there's some component of luck involved there where it hits some kind of critical mass and it becomes a like cultural tribal thing and there's a whole bunch of really complicated dynamics going on but mm-hmm. um Candy Crush has, like, in the first 15 minutes or something that you sit down and play Candy Crush, it does five things that I've never seen in any Match 3 game ever before. It doesn't matter how weird... Like, the last 20 years of Match 3 games from Japan Mm -hmm. have not tried some of the stuff that's in there. Mm -hmm. And it's cool. It's mathematically interesting. It's systemically cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, and it just kind of like throws it at the player. And I was like, I don't know. I was very, uh, like, as a game designer, super mm-hmm. impressed. Like, there's a lot of other things about the game that were like, it's just this, like, neon Candyland, <laughs> like, monstrosity. It's an assault on the senses. Like, we burn all of your eyes. Yeah, but the, um, but the game mechanics were um, not just the usual whatever mm-hmm. like there was I'm, I'm just i'm curious if i mean the, to me, part the, of what the makes it stand play out. games the free-to-play games that are in the top right now game of war clash candy crush like they're really well designed games with really really phenomenal tuning like mm-hmm. that's actually one of the things that surprises me is that like tuning makes or breaks free-to-play games like, you will not see any top 10 game that's poorly tuned. Hmm. From a 
from a pacing, from an economy, from a yeah. uh, like skill acquisition standpoint. They're all like immaculate. Um, and they're really well-designed games. Like, Clash of Clans is a really, really beautifully designed game. Like, the way that it braids together things that require, like, time investment versus financial investment. Like, things that you can... Literally, there's no way to pay to win certain things in Clash. And, like, all mm-hmm. of those kind of weave together so that no one player is too far ahead of the other. And it's hmm. there's, there's there's so much good design there and then of course you've got all of your colors and your shinies and your visual right. feedback and all the things right. that make it joyful but <laughs> yeah yeah they're really well designed games and these are things so one thing we talked about last time that we haven't touched on yet is this um uh doing metrics driven game design and the um one of the things that's tricky about that or problematic about that is all of the things that metrics don't tell you mm-hmm. like people's emotional reactions to things um, that so that you would have data that you could use to support a model of designing new mechanics around eliciting the same kinds of emotions that appear to uh, have uh, a high engagement value or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it uh, and then just trying to like distinguishing metrics-driven design from I don't know what you would want to call it, like intuitive design mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff in. I mean, there is a there is so much stuff in Candy Crush that is so obviously not metrics driven design. Mm. Um, like none of those mechanics can come from analyzing metrics. Like all of those metrics mechanics come from weird intuitive leaps about um, the apparently still unexplored space around the rest <laughs> of the games. Yeah. Apparently, there's a, there was just like mechanics just lying around there that nobody was bothering to use that are all like extremely interesting. Mm. Um, which is weird. Yeah, I like uh, to imagine just like a little workshop in Supercell where everyone was just like staring at match three games for like <laughs> yeah. ages. Yeah. <laughs> like doing yeah. everything. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean the issue there is that for so long all of the metrics were were your short-term metrics and the ones that were longer term were so clouded by the short-term metric feedback that like there's still like your 30-day retention is still so incredibly difficult to use as a guiding metric. Like, I don't know any companies who really focus on that. And to me, that's the clearest example of sustained quality, engagement, like, gratification over time. Like, if someone's still playing as opposed to like 30 days... Like, day one retention is, like, a big deal it feels like yeah which so yeah like your, of... what's your DAU and your DAU is really just how much money are you putting into acquisition like that's yeah that's what DAU comes down to which is something time. like so for yeah so earlier you're talking about how like I think um some designers I think uh or people who play games but may don't play social games or don't have to actually market social games maybe looking at um like a 2d puzzle game mm-hmm. like candy crushing they're like I don't understand why that's a, a I don't understand why that's a risky game to produce. It's a two-dimensional puzzle game. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like, like, why is that? Why, like, versus, you know, like, Call of Duty is expensive to produce because mm-hmm. it's a 3D action movie that you are in the middle of at all times or whatever. But like, why this 2D puzzle game? But um, players cost like five dollars per player or something. Mm. Uh, yeah, depending on what your genre is, like, yeah. the cost of acquisition can be insane, and very few people care about organics yeah, but this, because yeah but this is like literally a thing like like uh if you make a mobile social freemium game and you want to do it in a way that is competitive or noticeable uh the 
conventional way of doing that right now is you make the game and put it out and you literally uh, pay an advertising company an average of somewhere between three and ten dollars per person and they will come play your game which is the backwards from how I make games <laughs> usually they pay me like three dollars and uh-huh. then they get a game and then they get a game but yeah. this is the opposite of this that. is the exact opposite which is weird <laughs> yeah uh, it's very weird because all that matters is it's not how much it costs it's whether the cost is more or less than the average amount that someone's going to spend in your game yeah which and that is, varies based on the source that you get your users from yeah. and when in the life cycle you're trying to get that like it's it's yeah it feels like a weird so a thing um and like i get that it makes sense mm-hmm. like if you're if you're doing but that's why it's bullshit to use DAU as a measure of whether you have a good game or not. Because it tells you nothing. And so that's the thing that drives me batty about metrics for right. design, is the people who are like, oh, yeah, and this so, game and had if, a great Again, like, if people aren't super familiar with social or mobile stuff, like DAU is like one of the most referenced, most talked about... Like, for most daily active users. Yes, yeah. So this is the number <laughs> of people who are turning the game on once a day. Yeah, at least and once then, a day. Uh, and then there's like... I guess average revenue per user is a pretty big deal and yeah. it makes slightly more sense because it's not limited to some kind of weird short-term yeah. engagement thing. Well, so usually you have you have you have LTV. So that's lifetime value and that's how much people are usually going to spend over the course of how long they stay. Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, okay, I go back and forth on that one because there's two ways that you can affect your LTV by increasing the amount people spend per day, which is your DARPU, your daily average revenue per yes. ARP, DAO, or whatever. There's, Something. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Different people say different things, Yeah, um, which is how most people approach it. There's also, you can extend your lifetime, right? And then if people are still paying the same amount of money. Right. But again, most people go for the, oh, let's increase how much money they're spending instead of, hey, how do we keep them around longer? Because oh. those longer term issues are so much harder for people to yeah. conceptualize systemically. And because it's much harder to get um, your LTV data from looking at publicly available statistics. So lots of websites will have like top grossing. Like Apple tells you how much money these games are making, yeah. which makes it relatively easy to figure out, okay, if this is how many people are playing and this is how much money they're making here's their average revenue per user. Right, right, right. And so that's the thing that people can see, which means it's the thing that they can copy, which means yeah. it's the thing, you know, and so Yeah, on. the thing is, and again, like a lot of it makes sense to me, but at the same time, like a lot of it feels like, um, like a very good way to not make a decision, really. Right, like if like if you say yeah, like, like if you boil, like if you're looking at a big thing and you're like, wow, this is really really complicated. Can you show me two numbers and I'll pick the bigger one? Then like, but that's not actually making a decision, right? Like as a so like I've always been um, very wary of scenarios like that, or people try to for a while. I don't know if they still do it, but for a while, like in like uh, in American football, they were um, giving quarterbacks scores. Hmm. So they would look at like 10,000 different stats for a football player and they had this algorithm they would, they would dump it into and it would like shoot out the other end. They would be like 78 or something like that. <laughs> really, like this is an like, actual... Thank this is like, you for taking... Yeah, this is like a big thing. It was like a very... Po- I don't know if... I, I think they've given up on it, but maybe they still do it. But there was a year or two where it was like every every NFL game, like it would start up and you'd have 
all the teams would come out and they're like, ooh, it's a 83 versus 78. What's going to happen out there today? Ooh. And it's like, this cannot be a proper... There's no way... <laughs> there's no way that you can boil down people in Into this scenario. Into a single number yeah. against a sole generic scale yeah. of proficiency, well, and like the, and performance. Yeah. And like sometimes, like if the goal is you're trying to... Uh, predict the odds of victory so that people can gamble on it that's mm -hmm. one thing because you're like you're boiling a thing down but then it's going into this other like big system but mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of a lot of bad decisions so the thing that happens uh we're, i'm probably going off on another tangent again i need to get better at this <laughs> but the thing that like freaks me out about this like oh that number's bigger than this one let's take the number that's bigger mm -hmm. is um they are always counting stuff out of that Oh, absolutely. Because like, they'll be like, oh, this like had this mechanic, and this had this mechanic. This one got a bigger source, so we'll go with that mechanic. And it's yeah. like, like it, again, it completely ignores the systemic nature of a game. It says, we're going to take this one piece, and we're going to pull it out, and we're going to stick it into our system. And they're going to assume similar results, like, right. not direct, but ratio-wise, at least. Which is weird, because you never make, in real life, you would never make a, you would... It's very easy to regret a decision that's made with no context. If you're like, I want to, should I go to for a walk today or not? Like, you check the weather. Mm -hmm. It's important to have context for this. Like, what is the environment in which this activity will be taking place is usually very important to people. Mm -hmm. But it's like once there, as soon as there's money involved, like people are so terrified of making any decisions mm -hmm. that they just don't make decisions and they instead like have these tokenized systems of abstracting away that all of the things that are actually important and yeah. then you can like yeah. like yeah <laughs> so <sighs> on the upside people are <laughs> <laughs> on the upside people are starting to look at different types of metrics and do different types of user testing that actually get into like whether this is engaging short-term, medium-term, and long-term, and what makes it engaging, and hmm. is it engaging at a, like, automatic lizard brain dopamine level, or at a, like, individual mammalian challenge level, or at a higher, like, social satisfaction collective level, um, and... Moving towards Which is funny because I almost referred to that as whale level, but I was thinking <laughs> of like whales as like sensitive, emotional, yeah, like very uh, like high consciousness group oriented, mm -hmm. not as the like weird, creepy, <laughs> like free to play version yeah. of whales. So as we probably can't call it that. Dollars a day, yeah, yeah. I use I use sentience because I think there's like that that one thing that we have is that ability to to consider ourselves from beyond ourselves and to contextualize mm. ourselves in the world and a lot of where we feel good about ourselves at a like life scale is knowing that we are worthy in the eyes of others or that we have contributed in some meaningful way that we're part of something bigger than ourselves um mm. Mm. and it's interesting to think about what games allude to that or give you that and Hmm. Yeah, people who make these things should do more of that. I should do more of that. That's hmm. that's my goal. <laughs> yeah, that's a good goal. Yeah. That was the fun part about Super Better, was trying to figure out games that could bring you to... Like, 
we did a lot of thought experiments about like what would what does the 100 year game look like what does a thousand year game look like like a game played over the course of generations and centuries and where would you fall into that and then it was like oh well we have those and those are nations and those are religions and those are Mm -hmm. and uh, that gets into a whole different discussion (laughs) yeah i mean that's what like sociologists kind of felt the same thing like in the 1950s or whatever like they looked at a lot of um uh, Harzinga probably was like yeah, the main yeah. like he kind of looked at all the things like oh yeah these play, are all, this is yeah. all yeah we I've seen all of these things before yeah uh, now they're just a little bit more serious yeah or a little less serious depending <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. um anyway make better social games yeah make better games make better free to play games so um for the sake of uh uh let's call them concrete takeaways. Uh, uh, so we have all of these existing like social game templates. And the thing that I, th- that, that I think is great about these games is they are, um, uh, they're connecting with a big audience. And part of that is like companies are just paying $5 a person to connect or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, you do have people who, um, are getting into these games that they wouldn't have gotten into otherwise. Uh, and uh, the mechanics themselves aren't particularly interesting to me so much as, like, the effect that they're having. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, like, did you want to posit a, like, like what is, like, the emotional... Like, what is the emotional framework that people are connecting with? So, if, like, if we don't want to have game design templates anymore, we don't want to have an emotional template mm-hmm. for a free-to-play game, like, what does that look like? Or not a free-to-play game, a mass... Mm-hmm. A game with mass appeal, significant mass appeal. Like, mm-hmm. what is the emotional template for that? Oh, man. Okay, so I'm going to change the word emotional to motivational. Okay, yes. Because I think that that's a lot more about, like, why people actually... Like, the thing about free to play in these kind of massive games that they're all infinite right the only way to stop playing one of these games is is through boredom and so really it's all about attention over time and how you can keep Mm. that that delight over time or that satisfaction for attention over time ratio as high as possible and Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what's motivating you and so i think it comes down to understanding what the different types of human motivation are and all the different ways that people can play. And mm-hmm. challenge is one of, like, eight. <laughs> right, so I think right. it's looking at those other types of fun and those other things that motivate people and treating them as perfectly legitimate ways of getting satisfaction over mm-hmm. time. And it means being able to grow attention over time and to have enough material to satisfy attention over time which I think means going from that like attention-grabbing time when we are about dopamine, we are about the lizard brain, and we are about bright colors and clicking, mm-hmm. and then wrapping that in a longer-term progress bar where people are accruing things and feeling like they're gaining challenge or skill, and then extending that into a social ecosystem where people can join up with others and feel like they're contributing to something bigger than themselves or they're a part of something greater. Um, where they're not just playing games for themselves anymore. They're playing the games to hmm. to connect yeah. and be a part. And I think if you have all three of those things and you're not relying just on our classic notions of challenge, then yeah. you're going to have a successful free-to-play game that's going to be able to maintain attention over time. Hmm. So all these, so when you look at like the top 
top 10 whatever mobile games, uh, mobile free games or whatever. Um, these are kind of like, these are pretty much shared properties that all these games exhibit in some way. Like, Because I think it's like a popular thing is to be like, oh, uh, these social games really aren't that social. Mm-hmm. Like that's like a really... It's a really fun thing to say as a snooty game designer who wants to like take a dump on social games or whatever. Yeah. Is you say, "Oh, where's the where's oh, the social before, part?" Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there must be a there must be a, a social part to these things. Like if, if, so, if you pick so, Game of War is my favorite example. If you try to go into Game of War, that is the most atrocious, least accessible, like clusterfuck of an experience. Like there are four to five things bouncing and blinking on your Mm -hmm. screen at any point in time and so like all of that like initial like grabbing is just it it overwhelms you like it's the it's way too far but the thing that keeps people coming back to that is is that social engagement like if you play Hmm. game four it's all about alliances and clans and conquering nations and coming together um and if you think about clash of clans again it has that all those fun bright colors and then the the progress bar that is your your builder area and then you join the clan and you get to take over things even with candy crush you have the individual levels that are giving you that variable reward little dopamine you make a connection you have no idea if it's going to be just one connection or if it's going to create a cascade of you know dozens and mm-hmm. then you get your your world which is your big progress bar and you're moving through the world and then you get this kind of social layer um which is super super simple in candy crush um and it's actually one of the things that I think Candy Crush, they kind of, I think is why they had to come out with a sequel, uh, mm-hmm. because you, mm-hmm. you can reach the end of that content, and there's nothing... Like, there's as an outsider, it seemed like the social layer, a lot of the social layer had to do with just, the social layer was comparing the mm-hmm. progress. Yeah. And so if you run out of progress to compare, then it would make sense that they yeah. would need a new thing. Yeah. Because hmm. a lot of what... When I when I talk to people about that that model over time with the the kind of the lizard brain and then your your progress mammal brain and then your sentient we're all holistic game part of what that collaboration is doing is it's giving you it's giving you infinite content variables so the other way to think about attention over time is is new novel content to digest over time whether mm-hmm. it's in the term of new mechanics or new items or new whatever blah blah blah. Um, and people are kind of the ultimate infinite variable. Like, if you yeah. sit down and play chess with someone, even if it's someone you've played with all your life, every time you sit down, it's going to be a new and different game. Yeah. Because they say, like my, better. My uh, uh, freemium... It's not even freemium. Paymium? Oh, God. That's the thing, right? <laughs> that's the thing that... That's someone said that before. I didn't... Right? No! So, I didn't make that up. That's a thing, right? It's Where you, like, you buy the game, and then there are, like... There's in-app purchases or something, right? <laughs> I think awful. that's a thing. I, I think I that's a thing. It. I would believe um, it. But uh, my game for that is uh, has been Street Fighter, mm-hmm. where I like purchase Street Fighter and then purchase upgrades for Street Fighter and then mm-hmm. purchase like physical controllers for Street Fighter and then like go on flights to see other people play Street Fighter. Uh, but um, but yeah, that's that's totally its thing. Is like sometimes they throw in some new characters or something, but for the most part, it's well, there's fifty thousand people that you haven't played against yet. Yeah, uh, which is this. And playing Street Fighter, like we were talking about um, before, is kind of this weird mix of competitive and collaborative, where mm-hmm. it's not 
It's definitely a competitive game, but there's like a lot of things going on there that are in, require an enormous amount of empathy. Like like playing Street Fighter requires way more empathy than I've ever seen any cooperative game require. Which is like something that I feel like people should we should do something about at some yeah. point. Um, but uh, it's really beastly. It's really interesting. I don't um, think you ever incentivize empathy quite so clearly and immediately as you do in something like Street Fighter, right? Yeah. Like that is instantaneous and yeah, it's clearly yeah. It's, whether it's, or not you're you want to know what they're anticipating doing, anticipating and thinking first. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, like that's. Uh, I never thought of that as like an ongoing engagement. Thing. I mean, I guess we think about the like we would call that like like replay, mm-hmm. and we just kind of like boil it down. It's like multiplayer games have good replay. Yeah, but breaking it down to the idea that like multiplayer games have good replay because there is a like some kind of satisfying interaction with humanity, mm-hmm. like the uh, with other humans who are doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the challenge and whatever else. Yeah. Um, kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, it's, it seems obviously true for chess and like very, very true for soccer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, but yeah, so it almost feels like, cause this thing, like this idea of like ga- a game that has infinite content or whatever, when you look at, you look at chess or poker or soccer or whatever. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a bunch of models for this. Yeah. But and those are all the games that have lasted. Right? Yeah. But like, but I don't like. It seems like it's weird. Like the goal. So the goal of like a social game or a mobile game or whatever to be as like it sounds like they're trying to do what um, what any like multiplayer game designer would be trying to do, which is like, well, let's make a really good hobby. For people, mm-hmm. let's make like this meaningful thing. But I feel like, like my perception is that there's this huge gulf between somebody who's designing um, StarCraft or trying to design a new like uh, tabletop game mm-hmm. that they hope has uh, has really good legs. Because as you know, uh, Hanabi would be an example. I think like probably you could play Hanabi 50 years from now and it would still mm-hmm. be really cool, even though it's just from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, versus somebody who's designing. Well, that's like because, social games. Like if you think about a lot of the multiplayer games, that's all they have, and that's not enough, right? Because yeah, for for that mass audience, like that mass audience, like if it's just me playing against you, like if we're just playing chess, like there's no clear, like again, it, I think most people would approach that the way you approach. Hello, Kai. <laughs> the way you approach casual games, Good where point. it's like. Where it's like, it, I, it feels immoral for me to play this because it's not teaching me anything. I think a lot of people who play social casual tr- think about games that don't have something accruing over time as that for them. So oh, if it doesn't. It feels unproductive yes. to them because they're There's not nothing, getting. They're not gaining anything. Yeah. Because when I say they're not gaining oh, anything, weird. Like they gain skill, but that's not something tangible right. for them. Right. Whereas if they're playing Clash of Clans and but they like, get... A know, house in the clouds somewhere is, is tangible. totally tangible. And it's like, oh, oh look, weird. I, I am getting better. Right. And that's how they think about it. That's strange. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. 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 <laughs> um, oh, man. And so it's got to have all of those layers, right? Well, and and, and as um, 
you know, as as a game designer who appreciates a lot of what chess has going on, I don't actually play chess because like Street Fighter has way more explosions in it and like a way brighter color palette and like sometimes if you freak out you can just mash the buttons and yeah. sometimes uh you do just get something cool that happens because of that. Yeah. Um hmm. See, this is this contextual thing. I think for me, it's very easy to design games. My natural inclination is to design games in a bubble where there aren't people. Mm-hmm. There's it's kind so of much just easier. the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's uh, I don't know. It, I, and I, I don't even know if it's necessarily easy, but it's um, uh, I don't have to uh, confront. Uh, people being people mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. like it's very it's very safe i would yeah. say it's more safe than easy for me is well, like it's, it's i'm going to this white hermetic right? lab yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> those are two words that would describe me really well actually um uh oh so one of these um one of these games that's not game designer designed but is player designed is this um thing we talked about last time very briefly at the end which is um they call it surfing or counter-strike surfing. Yes, and, it's this and then weird... we went and we looked at it and we were like, this is amazing. Yes, <laughs> really weird counter-strike mod that's all about, it's specifically solely about abusing a, um, or ex- exploiting a collision glitch in the Half-Life engine that I think makes there be no friction on sloped surfaces or something like it's, that. It's the, it's, I think it's like the edges of things, so that if you hit the edge, it just yeah, the angle, it needs to be there's a, an extreme velocity. yeah. So there's somewhere like the game thinks you're falling mm-hmm. or something, but you're not actually falling downward because of the slope of the surface that you're on. And so people make these kind of skate park levels, uh, and none of these people are game designers, that we, or we would never never label them game designer or have them go talk at a game design conference or anything. They probably don't get money for what they do. (laughs) Absolutely not. Yeah. Not at all. Um, But they have been building these weird, beautiful things. Um, But uh, we started talking about that because you were talking about um, uh, uh, loving games about, or, or feeling like that nobody was making a game about flying yes oh my um, flying game <laughs> and about and that being another kind of fun that yes. would be for Calwa, that would be like vertigo yes. would be one of the things yes that's appealing about that yeah and Stuart brown would call those that type of fun appeals to like the kinesthete the mm-hmm. that kinetic mm-hmm. just wonder of, you know, yeah roller coasters and there's yeah. another good word for it too and i can't remember now from some one of the other uh what do they call that it's not exactly flow, but it's a little similar to that, like, hmm. uh, doing something too fast kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the Sounds word, Sounds like no. a Japanese term. Yeah, it Japanese might be. translation. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. Uh, but yeah, so it's like, um, uh, I think I, I wound up, I started with, like, Sonic and then Mirror's Edge and talking about how that's not something that seems to be in vogue right now as a type of fun to appeal to is that very um that very visceral sort of feeling of velocity or acceleration yeah and speed and like i guess you have racing games so i can't really say that but there's like sort a... Of, and a lot of the time they don't really feel this like to me they don't feel the same that was one mm-hmm. reason to make cannibal was like oh yeah. things don't have this like i want it to feel and it doesn't 
it doesn't totally translate. The like Cannibal in the web browser was the mm. one that was most obsessed with trying to make it just feel really fast. Yeah. And not for the sake of challenge, mm-hmm. but for the sake of that is a fun feeling. Yeah, that is, that is the uh, feel. Like I described it as wanting the feeling like you're... Like you've just tripped over something and you're mm-hmm. falling, but you never fall all the way. Yeah, you're just you're like you're still always, going forward. Yeah. You're still going forward. Yeah, yeah, like forever, just that infinitely. Yeah, uh, and wanting wanting to capture that more mm-hmm. than wanting to capture anything else. Um, and I think the Wipeout games used to do an awesome job of this. I don't think they do anymore, hmm. and I think it's a dumb reason why. Mm-hmm. I think the like. Uh, old Wipeout games, if you go back and watch them, I, like, I don't remember noticing this as a kid, but they are like super, super fisheye lens. Like the little mm. trick they do to make it look like you're running really fast in Gears of War, where mm. they like warp the uh, the viewing angle or whatever, yeah. or the focal depth a little bit. Wipeout's just like that all the time. <laughs> it's not only when you use your boost or anything, it's oh. just like that all the time. Yeah. It, it shouldn't feel good, and it feels amazing. Yeah. And they don't do it anymore. Like you can mm. compare it to screenshots, and you can see there's no. There's no warping at the edge or anything on new wipeout games, and new wipeout mm-hmm. games feel like like uh, pushing a shopping cart through Jello or mm-hmm. something. Like they don't feel yeah right anymore. And I don't think it's physics. I think it's just presentation. Presentation, yeah. Of, no, which that's is weird. That's, no, that's. But then you have to design the track to be playable inside this little bubble <laughs> in the middle of the screen because yeah. that's the only thing that's not just like torn apart yeah. by the extreme view angle. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so that's what I want. I want a flying game, and I want. I remember, I get really upset because I wanted a. I want a physical flying game, not like a. I'm inside of a plane, like one step removed from the wind and the clouds, but like an actual like. I have wings. I am flying. This is, like, immediate. And I talked about um, like height and ascension as one of those like primal human motivators. Yeah, like, we were just talking. Uh, um... Uh, Greg Labanov was just. We were just talking about this in. Um, where we were playing The Evil Within, which came out recently, which is a game by one of my favorite game designers, Shinji Mikami, and uh, it has, at least in the beginning of the game, some really bad level design and some <laughs> things that are like really weird choices, and I don't really understand a lot of it, but we were talking a lot about um, the role of ladders and stairs mm. in level design and how. Um, uh, uh, a friend of his has been doing a series of like actual um, like academic studies where they are putting people in virtual environments mm-hmm. and putting different things in the environments and seeing what things people lean toward and then uh, talking to them about why they're making those choices. Mm-hmm. And um, given the choice between going down a corridor or going up a set of stairs, people almost always go up the set of stairs and they will do it because they feel like they are making progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we... There's nothing there to tell them that they're making progress. There's no way to know. But it's height. Like, height is progress. That's weird, though, like, right? Height like, height is we're... so inherently progress. I mean, think about it. Like, like, deeply, like, religiously, like, we put our cathedrals on the tallest buildings. Like, we treat, like, going to the moon, right? Like, there's no... Yeah, yeah. I'm going to yell at my dog. <laughs> Boy. Unnecessary. no i think yeah i think that height is a fundamentally satisfying progress marker like i did i I did a lot of outdoor rock climbing for like two or three years Mm -hmm. and like height has a lot of appeal Mm -hmm. i 
definitely get that. And mm-hmm. I just think, like, it's still weird to me. <laughs> well, it's also, like, it's much more concrete because if you're, if you're thinking about just, like, traversing a plane, like, there's nothing that tells you that you're closer to something over here. You can just say, oh, I'm more left of it. Right? Whereas hmm. I think vertically, because as humans we live in a relatively flat world, ascension or vertical height is the one thing that we can say, oh, that building's taller. Like, we've always associated yeah. height with and it's But progress. it's kind of one way. Like, I always thought it's weird that, um, like, uh, uh, I think mountain climbing is still considered, like, a very, like, romantic, dangerous, exciting <laughs> activity, but... Um, spelunking is spelunking <laughs> is way more dangerous than mountain climbing. It is like a hundred times more dangerous, and it's way less explored. Mm-hmm. There's one percent of caves have been charted or something. Mm-hmm. We've mapped like one percent of the ocean floor. Like Come things, on, Minecraft. Like yeah, like th- <laughs> things underground. We it's are... like more people have gone to the moon than have gone to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Like we're not okay with it we're not for okay. some reason we're not okay and then there's like and everyone's like we need to we need to do more exploring oh we could explore like these infinite number of caves that like cover the whole earth and are resource rich and they're like eh, <laughs> nah, we could we could literally fly spaceships to meteors uh-huh. and land on them I'm not going in that hole in the ground like <laughs> That's interesting, because there's there's claustrophobia and then there's the there's la- loss of context. Because I think that's one interesting thing is that you gain perspective and you gain context the higher up you are. Hmm. Um, your visual field extends, and I think that also yeah. like sight and sight and power correlate there psychologically. And hmm. if you go into a cave, then you progressively lose context, right? Yeah. You lose every twist that you make. It's like, well, shit, I don't know where I am, unless you're in, like, a yeah. really nice geometric cave, which I don't think happens outside of Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, not a lot uh, of those. <laughs> well, and there's a thing, like, when you, you know, if you were, um, like, you know, I think climbing a tree or being on top of a hill where you could see a lot of things mm-hmm. was a safe thing to do as a human-like animal a mm-hmm. long time ago. Not that everything has to have, like, a bio- biological or evolutionary explanation, and I think, but we really like caves also, mm-hmm. but I think we only like caves a little bit. Yeah. I think we want to go in caves just enough and then no farther. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, maybe it's just, maybe it's just vision. Maybe it's just. And we also like the idea of caves as mystery. Like mm-hmm. you think about all of our fables, like so many of them involve going into a cave and like a cave becomes like an altar space, like an other space, like almost yeah. like a dreamish yeah realm and i think that's that's really interesting it's almost like you want to retain some of that mystery and some of that unknown and that the value of the cave comes from being unexplored and being that place that's Mm. black and ominous and alluring in that dangerous way Hmm. i don't know Hmm. um Uh, let's see, let's see. Um, so I guess I'll probably quasi wrap up with a question that I'm asking, kind of asking everybody, and this isn't, um, this is the one place where I'm kind of breaking with people just kind of, you know, just talking about whatever they want to talk about as a designer, because that's sort of the point of this whole thing, but Mm -hmm. also, um, the one thing I'm, I'm enjoying asking people is, um, uh, you know, especially in light of, uh, uh, getting to talk about these um 
game designers who, you know, people who are designers who don't even know they're designers. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, what can you think of an example of a time in a game where you had to break a rule or break with conventional wisdom in order to do the right thing for that context? Mm -hmm. So uh, rather than copy pasting a mechanic from somewhere else and just dropping it in, where was, you know, uh, my bad example that I usually give is, um, uh, we put these crates in Cannonball, and if you hit a crate, you slow down. When you slow down, the game just gets easier because you're moving more slowly. Mm -hmm. And you can do that whenever you want. And that seemed like a terrible idea when we first started talking about doing it, and then we realized that was a really, really, really good idea. Mm -hmm. We should definitely do it, even mm -hmm. though it doesn't necessarily fit with the idea of, oh, it's an arcade game, and the farther you go, the harder it should get. Mm -hmm. um, it for that game to do that right, it has to be built differently. Mm -hmm. um, this was a weird question for the Stanley Parable because <laughs> we fl so we flipped it, and the question for the Stanley Parable was, "What did you do that was?" Yeah, can you, can you <laughs> name something? Yeah, can you name something you did that was normal? And there was one thing. What did David uh, do normal? Uh, there's a speedrun achievement <laughs> um, that actually to. Uh, the world record is quite a bit below the speedrun achievement right now because there are places in the game that you can break that aren't intended to be broken hmm. and can be broken in a very speedrunny way to allow you to finish the game faster, which is like three minutes. I think you can beat the game in like three minutes or wow. something. <laughs> but only under certain conditions. Yeah. The game has to have been generated in a certain way. Huh. It's, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, anyway, uh, the thing that... Um, did you have a thing where either, either at work mm -hmm. or... On an independent project. Uh, Man, last time I think I used the Choice Chamber Hearts example. Yeah, um, which you can totally use again because the first, the first conversation does not <laughs> it's exist. It's gone. It's gone forever. Um, I think one of the things... So all of the, all of the kind of free-to-play stuff that I've been doing is all around time. Like, it, it can all sum back up to this theme of time. And when I was working on Family Guy... Uh, we knew, we looked at uh, the Simpsons game, uh, which had come out as a, as a main comp. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, everyone was like, well, you know, the show is just like... <laughs> sure, I could see. The shows are very similar. Why it doesn't seem like a big similar. stretch. Um, but we looked at the Simpsons game, and the Simpsons has a much broader canonical cast of like recognizable characters than Family Guy did. And so we yeah. had to figure out... How can we make the Family Guy characters last the same amount of time from like a content consumption perspective hmm. as the like two, three, four X um, Simpsons characters? Right. And so one of the things that we did um, that wasn't in any of the comps that we were looking at was to actually pull in RPG elements and make the characters um, like basically have to level up and have this kind of interlocking puzzle system. We're like, oh, hmm. that's, that's going to be too complicated. People aren't going to be really big on it. But like, you know, in Simpsons, you just you get one character and it's done. Like that's your character, and you have them and they're complete. Um, and with us, like you get a character, and that's like the very beginning. Then you have this whole cycle where you have to like bribe them. So you have to kind of like. You unlock them, then you bribe them, then you have them, and then you have to level them up and master them, and then you have to get skins for them. And like we just hmm. we added on a lot more, um, a lot more RPG to a builder. And usually that's like that was something where it was like 
too complicated, not the right audience, um, and it wound up letting us have a much longer runway than we were anticipating. So hmm. it's going to be cool. Yeah. Do you want to do also the choice chamber one? Anyway? <laughs> like, let's just load them up. Like, oh, okay. How do I describe the choice chamber one? Um, so in choice chamber, we had this idea of power-ups and you could get certain power-ups, um, just like any game, like this one, yeah. give you, you know, bonus gold drops. This one will let you be, take one hit damage without dying. Um, blah, blah, blah. We yeah. Thinking about how do we, how do we make, how do we display this? And then... Michael had the idea of the hearts, your life actually being the power-ups as well. So when you got a new heart or a new life, it would be a certain type of heart, so like the golden heart, the spiky heart, the icy heart. Oh, whatever. right, right. And so that would be how you had the power-ups and also how the power-ups would run out. So when you lost that power-up or that health, you would lose the bonus that that power-up was giving you. Yeah. Um, you can buy the soundtrack for my dogs after the podcast. <laughs> Kai is very into this. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and that was one where, like, again, there was a, like, confusion element and how are we going to know if, like, people would understand it or get it. It's not usually the way, usually you have a health bar. Yeah. And some separate things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most of the people I know who design, um, you know, randomly generated games, mm-hmm. roguelikes, roguelike, like, likes, whatever, <laughs> uh, multiplayer games, mm-hmm. all have this, uh, on some level, some kind of shared desire to build a thing that becomes a part of somebody's life in some kind of meaningful way. You want mm-hmm. this to be like, oh, this was the time in my life. Like, I can look back and go, like, I know. I know the like the four month period where I played the most Counter Strike. Mm-hmm. I know when that was. I know where I was living. I know yeah. who I was friends with at the time. Like that was this really. Uh, it was it was just a huge part of my life for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think um, uh, I think it's weird that everybody has the same goal of making this like powerful hobby that becomes a part of somebody's life mm-hmm. and the the different ways of approaching that mm-hmm. uh, and that a lot of designers are looking at that going like oh, I'm going to try and just make I want to make something that has as few moving parts as poker because I think that's part of mm-hmm. what makes these things endure mm-hmm. um, uh, versus sort of like well we're going to make something that looks like a casino but secretly it is like uh like a friendly it's like cheers Mm. so it's like a casino on the front and then it's just like happy friendly cozy place on the Mm. inside sort of Mm -hmm. um and i mean maybe that's right maybe there's if there's like 14 different kinds of fun then maybe there have to be like 14 different ways of making uh like a new hobby for people absolutely Hmm. absolutely (laughs) 